everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. In this episode, we're going to answer the remaining questions from the Ask Me Anything time this past Sunday, July 19th. We have been doing an AMA time at the end of our Sunday services, and today our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, is joined by Nicole Kyle, our director of music and worship arts, to talk through questions on sexuality, sanctification, and self-mastery. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. My name is Nicole Kyle, and I'm here with Nick Gibson, and we work on staff at High Point Church. And we are going to be going through a couple last questions that we didn't get to from the AMA Ask Me Anything section this morning at church from July 19th. But then also, we're kind of going to treat some of this episode as a um, as a cutting room floor episode. There was a lot of content Nick, that you weren't able to get to, or you weren't able to talk about as much as you had wanted to, and there's there's a lot of good stuff in in that. Um, there's a lot you could have said, and so we're gonna give some time to cover some more of those things. So, anything else you want to say before we jump in? I don't think so. All right. Okay. I'm I'm one of the pe- one of the people that struggles with the fact that I always have words. Yeah. Same. So. You know, it's funny. This is completely an aside, but I always think it's funny when people say like, do you have anything more to add? And people always start by saying no. And then they say something else. Yeah. And I, uh, I started noticing that recently in zoom meetings because we all always want to just talk more, you know? Yeah. I, I always have something to add, but sometimes I have to recognize that like, yeah, usually when you add something, people forget the thing that was said just before it. Yeah. So I, I realized like, especially on like when I was on podcast with Lloyd, Lloyd would say something and I'd be like, oh, I have something I want to say. But then I had to remember that like the listener would often lose what he had just said. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just human nature. So I'm trying yeah. to focus. Great. All right. Then let's jump into it. Most of these questions are specifically going to be related to the passage, but this one is, um, well, I guess actually, no, this is, this one is as well. I, Got ahead of myself. So, um, we you read and and taught out of First Thessalonians four one through eight, um, and so I'll just jump in with the first question. This says, "If one is forgiven and saved, and heaven is assured, what advantages does the journey of sanctification afford for eternity?" I think if I understand that question correctly, the answer is I can't possibly know that. <laughs> sure. I mean, I think that th- there is discussion in the New Testament of rewards, that how you live in the state of being saved is not indifferent to s- things related to eternal life. Mm-hmm. And not just um, that you'll be pleased with the results of your actions. So it's, I don't think it's just that like if I lead if I follow Jesus and I lead 10 people to Jesus in my life, mm-hmm. that my attorney is better because those people will be there and I'll enjoy the fact that they're there they're probably because of my participation. I think there's actually rewards in heaven. Like I think that there is some kind of proportional relationship 
to what happens to us and what role we play. And I, I think that I think that's intended in, for example, the parable of the talents in Matthew twenty five. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think I think it's in Luke's version where the guy's like he gains five more talents, and then the guy puts him in charge of five cities. Yeah. Right. He's like, I'm putting in charge of five cities. Yeah. So like the reward is completely disproportionate to the amount of money he just made, but he's still promoting people who were proven. Right. And, and so I, I think that there is, I, th- I think there is consistent teaching in the new Testament that there are rewards in heaven and pursuing sanctification will also pursue acts of faith and righteousness that are rewarded by God. Mm-hmm. And that that is, in some way additional or some, you know, it's like in, in some way additional to, to how things will go in heaven. So th- I think there, there's that. I, I don't know what the transition is going to be like in the resurrected body from where we leave off in this life to coming to the place of full sanctification in eternity to, to receive complete salvation. Mm-hmm. I just don't know what that's going to be like. So I don't know in what ways getting further along in sanctification in this life changes that experience. Sure. I, I think that that's all really speculative. Yeah. Okay. There's, um, I think that's, that's one thing I want to add to that too. That's kind of like a, I find did that. You want, did you want to add yeah, something? Yeah, I do. Nicole? I do. <laughs> it's hard to grasp or to, to grapple with that concept in the context of heaven, because when I think of rewards and proportional rewards, I'm, I also think very quickly about things like envy and jealousy and um, or feeling bad about yourself. And so there's there's a, a drama, it's like a one-man show drama that um, called The Bama Seat. I think it started as a book and then it was turned into this one-man play. And um, it talks about this idea of not wasting your life for God's kingdom and stewarding what it is that God has given you. And it talks about this idea of being rewarded in heaven. And and in this, it addresses that idea of how like it, you won't be jealous. You won't be, you won't wish that you had more than somebody else. You'll just be really excited for that person or I'm doing a bad job explaining it. But mm-hmm. I, that just is a hard concept sometimes for me to, to shake out because I'm, I feel like one of my um, consistent struggles that I come back to is feeling like the older brother and the parable of the prodigal son and feeling like, like this, this, uh, this relationship of like getting what you deserve and thinking you deserve more than you do. I just really struggle with that. And so it's very hard for me to imagine a heaven where I will see other people getting rewards and I will be getting rewards and I won't also be very envious of them mm-hmm. and be also filled with sin. So it's a hard concept for me to wrap my mind around some people can't even imagine a heaven where there isn't equity but that's just yeah the biblical concept of heaven has apparently all kinds of hierarchies in it and yeah things like that and god god apparently doesn't like a flat pancake for uh, eternal society yeah he has no interest in it but but of course it's also also the those differences in, in eternity will not be related to any privileges we had here yeah. So they'll be truly earned and truly um, just. Mm-hmm. And the relationships between people of different roles will not be unjust and no one will be in want. Yeah. So the, the reasons most people want equity will be established. There just won't be equity. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's just an aside, but um, okay. 
Let's move on to the next question. This says, when 1 Thessalonians 4, 6 refers to the Lord being an avenger, can you comment on how this relates to confronting someone who sinned against you sexually? Mm, Okay. That took a weird turn. Uh, Yeah. So, so this verse means what it says, right? Um, now, all verses in Scripture should be interpreted what's called canonically, that is, in relationship to the rest of Scripture. So, this avenging mm-hmm. that God will do is relative to the work of Christ. So, um, if somebody sins against us sexually, God will avenge that sin like any sin, um, unless it is avenged in the death and resurrection of Christ himself, right? So, but it's important to recognize that people don't think sex is a big deal. And so they don't think they're really sinning against anybody. They don't think of it in terms of injustice. They don't consider the amount of pain that it creates. And so they don't take it morally seriously. And so they don't think God's going to care. And so for them to recognize that scripture says that God will avenge these things could be morally sobering to such a person. You know, mm-hmm. which could, but the whole point of that is, to, so I would, I would cross reference to the end of Romans 12, where it says that you should be good to your enemy and give them food because in doing so you'll heap burning coals on their head, right? Like you should do the right thing for the person who's harmed you, mm-hmm. hoping they'll come to faith. Sure. Right. Right. But recognizing that if they don't, they will leave themselves to God's avenging work. Right. Which he has towards all sin, including sexual sin. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if that helps that person too much. Um, I don't. So I think if I was going to confront somebody about sinning sexually against me, yeah. and I was going to use this verse, I I might I might use it if I was going to talk to them and they just didn't take it morally seriously at all. Sure. And say, did you know this verse is in the Bible that God says He will avenge this mm-hmm. every time? Mm-hmm. And have you grappled with the fact that he takes what you did to me this morally seriously? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, but, but in the end, remember, when we confront people as Christians, we're doing it for their good. Our hope is for right. the person to repent yeah, and trust in Christ and for God to avenge that sin in the death and resurrection of Christ. So then let's look a little bit at that question more on the you know, the pastoral level out of context of this passage, if, is there a different way that you, if someone was saying, I want, I feel like I want to confront someone who has sinned against me sexually mm-hmm. and they come to your office and say, like, I, I want to do this. Can I do this? How would you respond to them? Well, I, th- I think you certainly can do it. Um, I think you could even argue that you're obligated to do it. Hmm. I think it would depend a little bit on what the sin was. You know, sure. if it was sufficiently traumatic and um, harrowing, um, I think that if you had good reason to believe that it would create future or further harm, then I I would, I think I, you know, so people who work with trauma, people would be like, you would never do that. You never have them confront the person. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I'm amenable to that. I mean, scripture says you're supposed to confront people who wrong you. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. Mm. particularly I think he means like you cheated somebody or like I, I don't think he means you have to face the, a person who horrifically traumatized you right. I think you can entrust that to another faithful brother to go right. do it right. or something mm-hmm. um, 
but I, but um so yeah i would say yes you can if it's a non-traumatic thing where you think you can do it and not be further harmed then i would say you're even i would say you're even obligated to do it mm-hmm. um but it's always for their good you're trying to win your brother over yeah you know um i i was pulling up the um this is going to feel like a hard left turn from this, but I was pulling up your sermon notes so that I could ask you the next question about a particular part of your sermon and saw the Ryan Gosling meme that I don't think we got to look at during this service. No, I showed it. I just, oh, it's I kind, of, it was it. kind of small, I think. Yeah. Hey girl, is your name Google? Cause you've got everything I'm searching for. Oh, Jill man. picked that out for Jill did my whole slide presentation this morning. So well done, I Jill. That was very funny. Okay, so um, I don't mean to just pull away from what was a serious conversation about confronting somebody. I think that, um, yeah, I, I think that it's a like, I know for me when I've had issues, whether it's been about past times that somebody sinned against me sexually or just past hurts, I think what you said about you have to remember that this is intended to be for their good, that scripture is clear about that, that mm-hmm. I think that forces the, the person who's been hurt to deal with what's going on in them first. Because if you're doing it because you just want to stick it to the other person or because you're angry or because you're bitter, there probably are reasons why you feel those things. In some instances, maybe you should feel angry, but what it forces us to do is deal with those things that we're going through, deal with any questions that this has caused us to have about God, about his goodness, to sort through those things, to, to come to God with them, to, to be made right with God. Not like because you were broken from him, but to have a, like a, a right understanding of yourself in the context of God before you are, confronting this other person that's a it's a hard thing to do but i think it also is for that is better for you in the long run too to not it it's always i mean you always think you're going to feel good when you yell at another person and oftentimes you do for a moment but it doesn't yeah. give you the satisfaction long term you're hoping for yeah i've i've I thought about that with a fr- i remember years ago when alex g picked the phrase justified anger for his racial justice advocacy work I always thought, you know, that's a very ambiguous statement because what he's trying to get as the positive meaning of that, which is there is anger that is justified mm-hmm. and that when, you know, cause he, he talked about people saying that, you know, you came off like an angry black man and he's like, you know, there is some angry that's the right emotion. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the other side of the ambiguity of that phrase justified anger is everybody feels justified in their anger. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the most dangerous emotional states to be in. Yeah. That's even for people too. who, even for people whose anger is justified. Mm-hmm. In fact, sometimes it's you're in the most dangerous position when your anger is most justified. Yeah, you know, because you you realize you think that because your anger is justified, your actions are right, right, and they're often not. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. So much more often than we want to think. Yeah. Um. Okay. So those are the the questions that we had to cover. And now there are just a couple of topics from this that you didn't really get to talk about as much as. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're converting like to, to a cutting room floor episode now. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about 
um, your second point, which was God defines holiness as self-mastery. So before you get more into that, can you talk a bit about what you mean by self-mastery? Yeah. So um, through, if you read the whole of the New Testament, especially, you're you're going to bump into this concept called self-control a lot. And modern evangelical preachers will go back and forth on this because on one level, um, you don't want people to just try to morally pull themselves up by their bootstraps, mm-hmm. right? If they're, if they're, you know, like if you know, the counseling has becoming more understanding of, of therapeutic things and counseling stuff, you know, you're like, well, you know, if somebody's doing a behavior repetitively and they're in some, they have some kind of psychological infirmity, just telling them to do better isn't going to help. Right. True. True. But it is also amazing what people can do when they exert themselves morally. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, one of the things that's part of Christian faith in, that's part of gracious striving is exerting ourselves morally to control ourselves. Right. That, you know, there's, a, there's one of the things that bothers me about some of the modern pop psychology books is they treat human consciousness like just a bundle of neurons mm-hmm. and that the best way to have like a good psychological life is to understand all the hacks to human neurology yeah. so that you can like be the kind of person you want to be. And I just think, Okay, yeah, but at the same time, you can just overcome your neuro- your neurology a lot. Mm-hmm. You just have to learn to not lose your anger, and you got to learn to say no to your sexual desires. You just mm-hmm. you, that can be done. Like you can you can so strengthen your conscious mind that your conscious mind can overcome your urges, mm-hmm. and that growth called self control is a very biblical idea. In Second Peter one five, it's like the third thing to pursue, fourth thing to pursue, right? Mm-hmm. Faith, then goodness, right? Faith, faith, knowledge, knowledge, to knowledge, goodness, to goodness, self-control, fourth thing, right? Yeah. So, so in this case, um, that verse that's kind of, that's disputed is everyone should learn to control their own vessel, mm-hmm. which is translated body, the NIV and so on. Um, yeah. You, yeah. You have to learn to control your body. Mm-hmm. Like you're, you have to learn how to control yourself. Mm-hmm. And psychologists like to call that executive function. I think that's probably too narrow and secularized a concept, but it's a real concept, right? Yeah. To help, there are psychological ways to in, help it, people increase their executive function, but increasing your self-control is also a cognitive function. Like it's a, it's a, it's an issue of consciousness in human choice. Yeah. It is utilizing what people who are too secular believe doesn't even exist, which mm-hmm. is human will, human mm-hmm. free will the capacity to choose the good. And so, yeah, you can do certain things to increase your executive function, mm-hmm. but you also have to use your consciousness as a human being and the, in your freedom of will to choose it and to discipline your mind along those lines. Yeah. And that, that is a process. Is there a reason that you chose self mastery as the word here over self control? Sometimes I just used a more secular sounding word so that people don't hear it in a cliched way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then just tune out immediately mm-hmm. for one, That's one really reason all. over another. Okay. Yeah. Cause when you say self-control, people go like, Oh, I know what that means. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so, um, there are a couple talk a little bit about, cause you're talking. Along- oh, wait, wait, I want to add one more thing. The last okay. Thing. Yeah. Part, I think, I think part of the reason too is mastery assumes success. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you just say self-control, that feels like a hobby. It's kind of like, yeah, I exerted some self-control, but it didn't work. Sure. And they they lose sight of the idea that no, self-control means that you will successfully control yourself. 
Yeah. And so sometimes people think of self-control as like a, it's like a, it's like a currency. You either have enough or you don't, but you're still spending self-control when you try. Yeah. Self-mastery is the fact that you're the master. You master it. Mm-hmm. You can succeed. You can succeed in it. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to, I wanted to put before people the idea that you can actually be successful. Yeah. And you must pursue that. Well, and I think that's, a, that's something that's interesting because this is the next thing I was going to say is that a lot of this conversation is talking about, so far we've talked about it in the context of sexuality and our sexual desires. Mm-hmm. Um, but the ability to have self-control and self-mastery goes far beyond that. And it, it's in, I mean, like I, I, for I, the next thing I thought of was learning to tame the tongue, the way that James talks about that. Like that's a very challenging pursuit to know, okay, in this moment, I should not say this thing because it's gossip or in this moment, I should not say this thing because it is not building up this other person. Or in this moment, I should not say this thing because it was told to me in confidence and in discretion. And even though I really want to, I need to, withhold that information or all these sorts of reasons that requires mastery over the self and and having control and i think because people find that they just blurt it out they're just like i just blurted it out you're like right yeah right because your passion because your passion was driving your behavior rather than your consciousness right and therefore your conscience yeah yeah i also added in my notes you'll see that um all this like seven deadly sins are all Mm -hmm. in some ways passion driven or lust right. driven. So like lust is obviously driven by, but so is pride. Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there just, there just as people are like, well, there's a physiological effect to lust. You know, pride is a, well, yeah. And so the ancient theologians called lust a hot sin and pride a cold sin. Hmm. And because of that, they believed that pride was much worse than mm-hmm. lust mm-hmm. Um, because lust like happens in a moment. And then you're like, Oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, like it's mm-hmm. easy to repent. Yeah. Whereas, Pride is kind of like a cold calculated, like, no, I'm just better. And you don't, yeah. there's not an easy moment of repentance. You're kind of like, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I'm just better than them, you know? Right. So, but, but pride still has that drive. Like people want, you have an urge, a, a craving to feel better than others mm-hmm. or to feel like you're fantastic. I think obviously wrath and anger, we've already talked about that. Laziness and sloth, I think is also, yeah. like you just don't want to get out of bed. You just don't, right. your body's just like, I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. And it's only by a strength of consciousness can you be like, yeah, but we're doing it. Mm-hmm. We're going for that run and we're mm-hmm. going to go do the thing I need to get done. I'm not going to sit here on the couch. And then envy and jealousy is, is like pride in that way that there's like this surge of dislike for that other person. And then greed, obviously just wanting more, whether that's um, the word for um, exploit in the passage this morning. Where is that saying? Not. Should not wrong his brother. Take, oh, passage. Where is it? Holy on, I roll. The, the word translated harmed Hmm. no one should no one in this matter no one should wrong his brother the word there is trespass or cross over a line Mm -hmm. they shouldn't or take advantage of that word take advantage is like exploit driven Mm -hmm. by Mm greed so in one sense like you would harm your brother or like you would you would harm your sister if there's like some kind of boundary that she has a sacred right to maintain, like obviously around her husband probably, right? Mm-hmm. And if you transgressed that line, mm-hmm. you entered into a domain or, or circle of responsibility that you had no right to trespass into, mm-hmm. right? That would be that word, right? Yeah. Wrongly, brother. But exploit would be to like use somebody for your greed. Sure. You just want you wanted something. Yeah. And you don't really care what it does to them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so there is a part there is a part of sexual immorality that's as much rooted in greed as it is in lust, right? Yeah. And then obviously gluttony, just wanting more, 
sensual comfort. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that have sex out of gluttony more than out of lust. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah, all of those, so all of those are related to self-control. Like every, 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 every sin is in some way related to mastering your passions, which is directly related to self-control. Well, and I think too, I mean, as you were, so I was also thinking of the passage that tells us to take every thought that we have captive. And when I was in college, a lot of those conversations were surrounded surrounding thoughts that were lustful thoughts, sexual desires, those sorts of things. Uh-huh. Um, the season of life that I'm in now, I find it my like the thoughts that I have to take captive are thoughts of hopelessness or despair. Uh-huh. Where when I find myself those are the times where I feel most like I'm not in control, where I find myself in this vortex of a, of a desperate thought, of a hopeless thought. And I just, if I keep going and I don't have a moment where I stop and think, I need to hold this thought captive. This is not true. This is not true of God. This is not true of my life and my circumstances. And um, that's just not what I used to immediately think of requiring my control. Um, but it does require my control. Yeah. And I think the idea that you have thoughts that are like renegades that you need to like take captive. Mm -hmm. I mean that, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like the more modern psychology research I, I read, I'm just kind of like, yeah, we Christians already know that Yeah, (laughs) they would read their Bible. Uh Like the idea that you would have these kinds of intrusive thoughts that present themselves as thoughts, Yeah, but they're really driven by something else. And in a lot of ways, your passions Mm -hmm. and your, your, your passion, like, you know, that's why Luther said reason was a whore. I mean, this is a guy who wrote thousands of pages in which he reasoned. But what he, the reason he said that was he, he, he said that, like, reason is the prostitute of your passions mm-hmm. unless you govern yourself otherwise with the human will and human conscience. And so, yeah, all these intrusive thoughts can, like, pe- I think sometimes people think that their passions and their thoughts are different. Sure, yeah. Uh-huh. And you're like, well, so, they are different things in a way, but mm-hmm. like your passions can drive a lot of these thoughts that yeah. are self-destructive. Absolutely. So when it does, the internal process is you in your consciousness, according to your conscience, that is what dictates what's right and wrong, true and false, you say no to that thing that is to take it captive. Mm-hmm. And so that internal self-talk is just a huge part of cog- cognitive psychology now. But I mean, it's all in the Apostle Paul. It's mm-hmm. just in smaller form people have been doing it for thousands of years yeah i'm not saying counselors shouldn't come up with cool ways to talk about it i'm just saying right it ain't new i mean yes um i remember in when i was working with the campus ministry we read a book called how people grow and it was written by henry cloud um Mm -hmm. and he was like listen this is all from the Bible. Christians have known these things forever. I'm just going to point it out to you and show you the things that psychologists are talking about but Mm-hmm. This is all from scripture. Yeah, I found that Cloud is particularly good on some of those points. Mm-hmm. Instead of just making it sound like, you know, I'm the only one who can help you. I'm the psychologist and yeah. I'm here to save you. He's kind of like, yeah, you here so he'd like he'll like exp- explain this like pretty profound psychological thing and it feels like a really good count, you know, right? And he's like, yeah. so this is in Romans 6 yeah. 4. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. just like it just plainly says it, but you know, yeah. I just Spent seven pages describing it so that you would feel cool doing it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so I want to ask you one last question about self-mastery. So on one of your slides, you say, we must ordain and then shape our spiritual emotions in accordance with the truth and the will of God. Otherwise, we cannot love God or others. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Mm -hmm. Um, 
I'm trying to find where I can look at it, but yeah. Um, but what, one of the things I said all through substance and I've said for years is that love is one of the, it's one of the most complicated of the virtues, but that it, then it also takes the most strength. Hmm. And so w- w- if we don't grow in spiritual maturity, we become like, uh, like a cipher. We were like an empty shell. And so to be satisfied, we have to suck in life into this cavity of a soul that we have. And so we can only exist as parasites. And so such people are not loving. They're devouring, mm-hmm. right? And um, Freud knew this. And, and Lewis wrote about this in a couple of places about, about like the devouring mother, like the mother who thinks she's loving her child, but she's really devouring her child's life. Mm-hmm. Like you, we can, we can easily do that. And, and um, um, in the screw tape letters, there's this whole section where screw tape is like so pissed. He's so, I'm sorry. He's so upset at the idea of love mm-hmm. because he's, he's saying what love assumes is that two beings can occupy the same space that you can expand without devouring the other. He's like, and that's just flatly literally ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, I expand by devouring you, right? That's how that works. Mm-hmm. That's how you flourish is by eating others. And I, I the reason I like that section is because it is a great metaphor for human beings. Generally speaking, you either find a way to love in this way that's self-sacrificial that enriches everyone, or you are a devourer and you mm. you don't think of yourself that way, but you really are just devouring everybody around you. Yeah. And so it's really important. There in Philippians 3:19, Apostle Paul says about people who just won't be sanctified and won't believe in Jesus and follow him is their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach mm-hmm. and their glory is in their shame. Mm-hmm. So they think what they do is fan- they, the, the worst thing that they do, which should be really their shame. They think is their glory. They, th- you know, yeah. they're like, you know, like, I don't follow the rules. I'm the, you know, like, I'm so awesome. And you're like, no, the thing you think is best about you is the thing that's worst about you. Mm-hmm. And that their God is their stomach. Like yeah. they think that they're their own man. But really, they're just falling around their nervous twitches, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Um, I want to give you an opportunity to say anything more you would like to about self mastery before moving on. Is there? I well, we already covered this. There's always more you would want to say, but is there more that you think you should yeah. say? Yeah. Let me read this section. Um, I don't think it's the same thing you wrote. Um. We, we can't love others and we can't love God whose love comes to us mostly in non-sensual ways. So like if we don't rise above the level of sensuality in our human being, mm-hmm. then we just, we aren't forming ourselves to receive the love of God because the way God loves us now, especially is in mostly non-sensual ways. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if we're, if we're a sensualist, not only can we only enjoy human beings on the most sensual, the, like the lowest kind of level, and not holistically or comprehensively, but we can't even receive the love of God because it comes to us in ways we can't accept. Mm -hmm. Right. So I wrote after that, if we can only receive love through our surges of passion and cravings, we'll end up emptied, alienated from others, enthralled to desires we hate, ashamed of ourselves and in the company of really toxic folks. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is a secular way saying toxic people is the secular way of saying people given to impurity. Yeah. Like ultimately what ends up is, is that you'll gather around you other sensualists mm-hmm. and you'll, you'll all be devourers. And when you put a, w- a bunch of wolves in a ring together, nobody gets satisfied. Everybody gets torn apart. Yeah. And listen, I know, listen, I know people who can't think of a single person in their life that's re- that gets really helping them. 
hmm. that like is really like there for them and loves them for who they are. And, and that's what happens. That's what happens. So, yeah. Okay. We're going to sh- uh, shift gears here. We're going to move to talking about modesty. Um, I want to first bring up something that you said in the sermon that I was um, pleasantly surprised to hear in a sermon, not surprised to hear it from you, but just not something you often hear in churches. Um, you said you said something like, you know, I know I've seen this happen where there's the guy who's filled with rage and self-righteousness and pride and then someone walks into the church, a woman walks into the church and her neckline's a little bit too low. And he's like, Oh, that's not okay. That's not modest. That's inappropriate. And you're recognizing the hypocrisy in that situation, um, Mm -hmm. which often is not recognized. And, um, but you, you and I were talking a little bit before starting to record that there are a lot of, especially women. I've heard it more from women. I don't, maybe men feel this way too, but I know there are a lot of women who feel like, um, the female body is de- it because of the conversations about modesty. They feel like this; they're supposed to see themselves as like icky, as just being a temptress, as being um, like the the one responsible for the actions of men. Um, and it, mm-hmm. to be sure, this is a complicated, complex, interrelated situation. Yeah. But. Um, you're right that this has been, it hasn't always been, uh, it's, it's been a complicated and sometimes really hard topic for women in the church. Um, so go ahead. So, okay. So let me say a couple of things about this from first Thessalonians four. One of the things that's interesting about first Thessalonians four is that it reverses the responsibility of sexual, um, purity from the norm and human existence. So psychologists and sociologists and anthropologists will tell you that for the entire history of the world, for the most part, women have controlled sex. Now, I know that's hard for some people to believe because people believe that like, well, didn't men just clobber women over the heads and rape them? Well, not not really. I mean, there's there's not a huge amount of evidence for that like after city-states were formed. I mean, like maybe back in like the primeval eons that was the case mm-hmm. but not not since there were fathers over families that didn't want their daughters raped and like like in the beginning chapters of genesis where dina is raped mm-hmm. and um her brothers go and like gut dozens of people mm-hmm. in the city who had nothing to do with it and their father's like why did you do that and they're like we're not gonna treat our sister like she's some kind of prostitute mm-hmm. screw them right i mean that Women have, turns out women have always had men to protect them. Right. Right. It's always been women who are unprotected that have been abused. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, but throughout most of the history of the world, women then would decide when sex happens Mm. because most men did not want to rape women, obviously. And women are directly connected to the fertility related to sex. Sex is a much more responsible event for them because they're particularly personally bound to its fertility results. Right. Mm -hmm. And so women tended to be slower to it and which is understandable because they're more vulnerable in it. And um, so men have, con- women have controlled that. And w- in first lesson four, Paul is just kind of like, looks at the dudes and he's like, this is your job. You should not wrong your brother. You should learn. And he's mainly talking to men, all the, all the structural references gender wise is emphasizing that he's talking to men, not women. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that Paul is expecting men to lead in this. Yeah. So like if you're a young man and you're dating a young woman, like in our church, she shouldn't have to be stopping you. Right. 
Like you should, sh- you shouldn't be on a date with her. And then you're snuggling up to her and she's just like, we shouldn't. And then you're supposed, no, you're the one who's supposed to be like, uh-huh. I'm going to go drop you off. We're like, that's your job, man, uh-huh. not hers. Uh-huh. And um, that's the only way it works. If both people are trying to do it. I'm not saying it's not the woman's job too. It's the woman's right, job too. Right. Uh-huh. If he fails, then she should be like, okay, put your hands back in your holsters partner. You know, uh-huh. like that's, that's her job also, but it's his job first. Yeah. So I think that's important. I also think that none of the like overly focused on women kind of stuff is found in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So yes, women are to dress modestly. In First Timothy chapter two, the most famous passage relative to this, most of the stuff related to women, it has to do with class, right. not hotness. So it's how wealthy you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes people forget that like women are desired for two reasons their fertility and their status for the most part in the most visceral sense, at least, which is not how any Christian is supposed to pick out a woman, right? They're supposed to look for um, something else, which I'll get to in a moment. Mm -hmm. But in this case, you have women who are beautifying themselves in a wealthy sort of way. So that they look both pretty and high class. Mm -hmm. And the, the emphasis seems to be not that if you do that, the men are going to be slobbering all over you, but that you'll actually create rivalry among the women of the church. Right. And you will, the women will all hate each other. Just like the, the verses before, men are supposed to not quarrel, but lift holy hands in prayer. So there's no quarreling among the men. Mm-hmm. Because the the definition of, proper definition of modesty is, immodesty is inordinately um, like advertising or lifting yourself up in the hierarchy of mm-hmm. people structurally. So it's like, it's like getting, getting more attention for yourself or a better place for yourself in a way that isn't right. Yeah. And so flaunting your sexuality as a woman is one way to be immodest. So is like being being loud and like always trying to make yourself the center of attention. So is yeah. showing how much money you have constantly or like there's a lot of ways to be immodest, to put yourself high, right? And so I think it's in First Peter where the apostle says, don't, women, don't adorn yourselves immodestly, he means. Um, but adorn yourself the way Sarah and other women of old did with their godliness. So he's saying you can make yourself beautiful and make yourself really attractive and do something that will cause men to be drawn to you or people to be drawn to you or for you to have a higher prominence. Right. That is godliness. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so, so being immodest is a rejection of godliness as the means by which people should be honored Mm -hmm. and desired. Does yeah. that make sense? Mm-hmm. It displaces what is the real value for a false value. Yeah. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when you think about it in that way, there's so many things that are included in immodesty that mm-hmm. have nothing to do with what a woman is wearing for men and for women. If right. you think about I like I wrote this down when uh, this probably isn't verbatim what you said, but it's getting a better position for yourself in a way that you that you shouldn't do so. That in mm-hmm. some way is probably based in some sort of um, facade, some right. in some way. We do we all do that right. in lots of ways all the time because we want people yeah. to think that we have higher status. We want people to think that we are more important than we are. Like the it's like the puffer fish. We're like puffing ourselves out in some way. Right. Yeah. There's, and there's, there's also, there's this, I think it's from, I can't remember where this is from, but there's, there's this place in Lewis. I actually think it might be mere Christianity where he says, um, there's a lot of goods that in their right proportion are good, but then when taken 
to what they shouldn't. They're bad. So he's like, mm-hmm. and, and he says, for example, alcohol. Mm-hmm. There is like the Bible says the wine makes the heart glad. That's mm-hmm. not that's not a pejorative, right? Mm-hmm. The assumption, and, and like they're talking about something like a semi buzz or like a like you have a couple of glasses of wine and it's easier to laugh, mm-hmm. right? But if you drink a bunch of it, you get drunk and then you act without self control, that kind of stuff, right? Now, a lot of fundamentalist Christians are very conservative evangelicals who have been part of a temperance movement or have worked close with alcoholics or people like that. They'll be they what they'll say is. Christians are allowed to drink alcohol so long as it has no effect on them. Right. Well, see what Lewis is saying is he is not that and, and right, neither is Solomon. Mm-hmm. Right. What he's saying is, no, there actually is a intoxicational effect that is good. Like you can drink a couple glasses of wine and it makes the heart glad. That's good. Mm-hmm. That's why Jesus produced a lot of wine. Right. Like, ga- like, like dozens of gallons of wine for this wedding. Right. Because people are supposed to drink a lot at weddings and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet, right, drunkenness is bad, right? Right. I think the same thing is true of female sexuality, right? That like every guy doesn't want to see cleavage of women he can't have and stuff, right? And yet he wants the woman he's going to be with to attract him. Mm-hmm. Well, how is she supposed to do that? Mm-hmm. Right? And so on, so what has to happen is a woman who's, let's say, a, let's just say a single woman a single woman who desires a husband desires a man to have their masculinity activated by her femininity because the only reason he desires her as a wife is partly because he wants her as a woman. And so she, she wants to be feminine enough and even in some ways putting off a certain amount of sexual energy. So as his masculinity attends to it and finds himself interested in her without overdoing it mm-hmm. and being seen and being objectified. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of like spice of attractiveness. A woman can drop onto her character mm-hmm. by how she dresses and presents herself so that it evokes a certain, there's a little bit of sexual energy and it evokes something in a man to be to notice it. Be like, Oh, this is a woman who mm-hmm. I might like yet not there being so much that she becomes a sexual object and is no longer herself a subject that he is a subject is knowing. But now in his mind, she has become an object Mm-hmm. Because now she's just just an she's mainly an object of sexual desire. That road can be kind of difficult for women to walk. Mm-hmm. But like honestly, I look around High Point Church and the women are doing fine. Mm-hmm. Like they dress cute, they're not licentious, they're not like they're doing fine. Like like tights aren't pants, and let's not see your boobs. And like beyond that, everybody's pretty when they're young. You know, like who like it just is what it is. Like if you're a man, you got to grow up and. And learn not to see women as objects. Mm-hmm. And for some men, that, that actually goes back to like psychological hurts and problems yeah. that you have to deal with. Yeah. Um, if you naturally objectify women, sometimes it's not as simple as like trying to think pure thoughts mm-hmm. or bouncing your eyes or whatever, snapping yourself with whatever. Mm-hmm. But it's like you got to figure out why you think of women as things mm-hmm. and not full subjects yeah. and people. So, yeah. so I think that I think that men have to be t- a certain cert- have a certain amount of tolerance with women because they need to be feminine and evoke with a certain amount of sexual energy the interest of men. Yeah, and even to please their husbands mm-hmm. and and to allow themselves to just be pretty. Yeah, um, and you can and women can do that and be attractive and not try to shroud themselves without being lewd. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so there's a certain kind of lewdness that women really need to avoid. Mm-hmm. But I don't see that problem at High Point Church. Yeah. 
I don't see that hardly anywhere. Yeah. Every once in a while, there'll be some girl that needs a little advice. Yeah. And sometimes some women will get saved. They'll come in out of the world. Yeah. Where objectifying yourself actually gets you a good bit of power. Mm-hmm. That power is better than nothing. Um, that's how they know how to attract male attention. Yeah. And sometimes they need a little mentoring, you know, yeah. you have to do that delicately. Yeah. There are two thoughts related to that one that you just hit on that, like that it does involve mentoring. I mean, I think that going back to the conversation about alcohol, it is a fu- like it is in some instances and for some people it takes some trial and error to figure out what that means. And like, I've had instances where I've had a drink where I was, I wasn't eating. It didn't taste very alcoholic. And I didn't realize I drank it very fast until I stood up and I thought, Oh, well, that went away. I was not expecting that to go. Mm-hmm. And I have learned since that occasion and I understand better. And so like there's there's yeah. some of that that I think that people are a little bit more gracious in those instances than with well, I think your example of some like men and women who were non-Christians who are coming into understanding Christianity and understanding what it looks like to not try to prop themselves up around other people. It takes time to fit, to learn what that looks like and to have the balance. And I, I'd love to hear your um, an example. You gave an example of what it looks like for a woman to try and walk that line. I think it'd be helpful to hear an example for what, a, what it looks like for a man to walk that line too. Yeah. Um, but we can come back to that in a moment. But I just, I think that that's helpful to know, yeah, it is kind of tricky and we should pursue honoring God in that and we should ask for help and we should receive help and we should be gracious with people who are trying to sort that out. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Do you want me to answer that question? Yeah. Why don't you answer that? And then I'll, uh, because I forgot the other thing anyway. (laughs) So my best understanding of the psychological research, and this is also true to my experience, Mm -hmm. is that the main lever that women have is their fertility, um, which translates into their physical hotness, right? So, like, we all want to pretend it's like something else, but it's it's really our biological desire to procreate. And like, when we're that low a person, and women who have ed- exaggerated forms of fertility, as we associate with them mentally, partly based on the fashions of the time. That's a really strong lever. For men, it's always been status. The higher the status the man has, mm-hmm. the more independent he is, the more he can provide, the more safety and security. Because a woman knows that if she enters into a relationship, it's going to make her vulnerable. Mm-hmm. She's going to be vulnerable because she's going to have children, because she's going to age, because she's going to give up some of her own freedoms to acquire wealth and so on. She's going to narrow herself down to one person, all those kinds of things. There's all kinds of vulnerabilities that women have. And so the higher the status man, the more, in a lot of ways, the more attractive he is. Mm -hmm. And so, um, therefore men will try to position themselves immodestly as the highest status man, Mm -hmm. the funniest, the most gregarious, the wealthiest, the most athletic, the most muscular, the most self-confident, the most whatever. And, and sometimes the most manly, like the, like the sexiest, like they'll, they'll do their little bicep shirts and they'll Mm -hmm. go to the gym a lot and whatever. Um, but like a dude with big muscles that wears like a really tight t-shirt, that's really not different than a woman showing us her cleavage mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's helpful. Um, okay. So maybe this will be my last question for you related to modesty. Yeah. And so we can but, go ahead. Yeah, but like most guys, mo- like men are just not as fair creatures. This just isn't a thing. 
for like human, like, yeah, there are some guys that women think are cuter than others. That's true. But for the most part, when you look around at like what sells, like mm-hmm. what gets women, it's status. Right. You can and almost set your watch by it. And so those are the ways that men will act immodest is by trying to promote their status. Right. right. And, and, and and once you realize that, it's perfectly it's perfectly obvious why you see men with women 20 years younger than them. Sure. Because men have gained status for 20 years. Mm-hmm. They're at the peak of their status. Mm-hmm. And then they get a new woman. And what do they look for? They don't look for a woman of equal status. They look for yeah. a woman in her peak fertility. Mm-hmm. Right. And so they pick a young woman. And that's that's like very normal. And mm-hmm. in fact, over the history of the world, marriage-wise, it was very normal. Sure. Mm-hmm. That women in the peak of their fertility from like 16 to 24 ended up marrying men that were in their, well, mid-30s to early 50s. Mm-hmm. That was t- really common. Yeah. So I think that was, I think I also think it's icky. But right. right. In our culture, women generally, and at least in their first marriage, will will um, limit themselves by a certain like grossness cultural factor mm-hmm. to men that are younger, yeah. right? That are like in their cohort. So they'll go for the highest status man they can find in their age cohort, mm-hmm. which is pretty normal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that's that's what they do. I mean, that's I mean, like you look around at the world, you look around how, how people behave. That's what they do. They yeah. have all kinds of ways of making it seem sophisticated. Yep. But it's not. Yes. Um, okay. So I have one question and then also you wanted to talk about, so then what is it we should look for? Um, so maybe, uh, Mm -hmm. in, if it's not these forms of whether it's like our status, if it's, if it's not only our status, if it's not only our fertility and our beauty, what are the things that we should look for in another person in the way that we feel like? So anyway, okay, let's come back to that. Let's wrap up with that. But I want to ask one more question as it relates to this, like modesty, the line, the buzzed, drunk sort of thing. Right. So if you're if you're in a situation where you mentioned fundamentalists or people who have worked a lot with alcoholics or come from the family of alcoholism, you might find a lot of people who are saying, we just shouldn't interact at all with alcohol. We should completely go the other direction. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people who say, no, that's not what that sort of um, – that, that's not a – a requirement and a line that scripture draws for us. There is. And almost no Christians in the history of the world have ever believed that. Yeah. So my question as it relates to, and and this is a principal question. So this is as it relates to alcohol, but also as it relates to modesty, because that, that same sort of a thing is true in the conversation of modesty and sexuality in Christian circles, specifically as it relates to women about, well, should we just not like, does this mean you shouldn't even pursue looking beautiful? Where's the line? Should we just run away from that or should we try to find a balance? Um, And I think I spent a lot of my life and my adolescence in the like runaway camp because I so desperately wanted to not sin and wanted to honor God. But I found myself in these like rules and um, boundaries in a lot of areas of my life and legalism that God didn't ask of me. And I also found myself really judgmental of other people too, because I had made these rules about what the Christian life was supposed to look like. So how, my question is, how do we, how do we balance that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I guess my, my pursuit of this in recent years has has been understanding our, like our nature and condition as people. Right. So, um, men and women are kind of made to bond with each other. And that's a reality that we have to deal with the tension of, 
right? Most workplaces in the history of the world have not been co-ed. Um, people worked on family farms where they were only with their spouse. They weren't going to work in a place that, you know, like guys weren't going to work in a place with 60% women or vice versa. Right. And, um, that just wasn't a thing until fairly recently, even in America. Right. So one of, one of the gains of feminism has been women pursuing things and having this admixture. I mean, I think it was Jordan Peterson who said recently that like, we still don't know if the code workplace is going to work. It's only been like 50 years. Mm-hmm. Like we might find that it's just, it's a bad idea. Right. My wife hated it. She worked with mostly men mm-hmm. and this was in her twenties. My wife is quite a pretty lady and she just hated it. I mean, she just hated it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and she wasn't sexually assaulted or anything. She's just always around guys and there's always that sexual tension and she just didn't like it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so yeah, I think that, I think that there is I, like, like I said before, like if you're going to attract a, a man, there's a certain amount of sexual energy a woman has to put off. I, I think, I think that if a, like I've actually told a few, a couple of women, not very many at high point who are struggling to find dates. I've actually said, I think you're, I think you are, I think you're being modest in a way that's not helpful. I think you're trying to be so modest as to be sexually androgynous. And so then when guys interact with you, you're not evoking anything in their masculinity. So they're not thinking of you as a potential date. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a certain, like, th- like if you look at some of the women that get the most attention from men, even relatively godly men, there's a little, they have a little swagger about them that has a little bit of sultriness in it. And there's a fine line there, you know, between expressing that you are a sexual creature and sexually available for the right kind of interest from the right kind of person to engaging in a certain kind of sexual energy that invites men to look at you as an object mm-hmm. of conquest or taking or, or as an expression of their sensuality. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think, I think you need to think a woman should think about expressing sexual energy specifically related to the comprehensiveness of herself as a woman, as a whole person and the kind of sexual energy that would invite somebody in to experience and and like her and get to know her comprehensively. Mm-hmm. So, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, the, it's like the flowers fragrance. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more of the plant and the flower, but there's a little smell put out in the air. So the bees come. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. But the flower itself is godliness. Like when that bee smells that on the air and they come to the plant, we want them to be captivated with the beauty of the flower. Mm-hmm. And in Christian faith, for both men and women, that's supposed to be godliness. So a great example, this is the book of Ruth, right? It's no secret in the book of Ruth that Ruth is a hottie. She's apparently, she's apparently very attractive and Boaz is older and hasn't married. And when he, when she comes to him and says, Hey, will you, will you take care of us? Will you marry me? Mm-hmm. He's like, he's like, he doesn't say these words, but he's like, oh, I thought you were going to marry one of the young, nice looking men. Uh I didn't think you would, you would want me. And the subtext there is, no, I want you because you're a good man. Uh And then he says, yes, I do want you as my wife, not because you're the hottest thing I've ever seen, but because of the way you took care of your mother-in-law when she was destitute. Uh Uh Right. So there's no, there's no issue that Boaz was likely very attracted to Ruth. Right. But he never treated her like an object. Mm-hmm. He always treated her like a subject. How's your mother-in-law? Do you need some food? How can we take care of you? Mm-hmm. He didn't, he, I think he honestly had no clue that she was going to be interested in him. Mm-hmm. 
I think it was a huge surprise for him. <laughs> I think that's why she had to dress herself up. But see, but, but like when, when, um, when Naomi tries to get her together with Boaz, she doesn't say, you know, after you were pretty disgusting and you've been in the field all day, just like lie on his feet. She's like, no, let's come home and get you girled up. Yeah. And then go lie at his feet. Right. And, and so like she, be- she, she literally beautified herself, mm-hmm. but she didn't throw herself at him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so like the, the, the dance, but in the relationship of human sexual energy is, it has these issues. Mm-hmm. But I would say this for women who are around men who are not their husbands and not their interests. You can help those guys a little by not being super hot. Like, like not going the extra mile. Like, yeah, look nice, look nice for yourself, wear clothes that you like, all of that kind of stuff. But there's like, there are levels like you can make sure that your lips look really great with some lip gloss. There are like, there's, there are little things women can do that like turn the corner a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you really, you really can help out the guys in your life by, Mm keeping it a little bit business, more businessy and like mm-hmm. not being quite as adorable. Mm-hmm. And, and the women who understand the power of their sexual energy understand that. Mm-hmm. And the women who don't usually aren't flouting it too bad because they really are oblivious, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah. the women who know how to shake the goods should be merciful. Mm-hmm. That's all. But I think that you would agree that the, the same is true for men who are in the, who are in the like high powerful situations who have a lot of, whether it is what whatever part of status that it is that they possess, yeah, they've got to be. Oh yeah, care all you have to be is-, is like you have to act self-assured, strongly masculine, but then deeply interested in a good listener. Mm-hmm. And you can basically like cause any woman's heart to cave in if and- you know how to utilize your masculinity that way. Mm-hmm. And you need to not do that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that I think that it's. I think that it's that we have seen you. You can see the average person that that there are women who are going to have an easier time with finding someone to date. There are men who are going to have an easier time finding someone to date. And if mm-hmm. you're not looking, if you're in that camp and you're not looking, and you you know that about yourself, it is it's very rare that you find a successful man who doesn't know that about himself, or a beautiful woman who doesn't know that about herself. You know mm-hmm. it, and so if you are in that situation and you're not looking, both for both men and women, there are things that you can do to to be modest in the way that you're interacting with the other men and women around you, so as to not lead into any sort of um, entangled relationship that is unnecessary and unhelpful and sinful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this gets back to the whole injustice of things, right? Like part of the, part of the reason why, like, for example, I've said to people before that I think just delaying marriage inordinately is just a bad idea and ends up being an unjust because the the problem is, is that um, there's a lot of people who are going to wait around if they think they have a chance with somebody who's higher status. And so if that person is just hanging around, there's all these pairings that don't happen mm-hmm. because they're doing that. And I actually, I've seen it at high point before. I've actually had to confront a couple of guys and been like, look, either leave the church or pick a woman. The problem is, is there's a bunch of single people here and there's a, there's like nine women hanging on to see if they can get you. Mm-hmm. And the minute you pick a woman, or even if you're dating somebody seriously, they'll like quit wondering if you're going to ask them. Yeah. Right. And, and 
I know that feels like, well, I shouldn't have to do that. Well, yeah, probably. Probably. Mm-hmm. But this, uh, th- welcome to the human race. Mm-hmm. Everybody's trying to win. And the whole idea of having a soulmate that like, well, I wanted her and she wanted me and we we're the only ones who wanted each other is just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like when I met Lexi, every guy I knew wanted her, mm-hmm. you know? And it wasn't like, like I was special and she was special. We were just for each other. And nobody else was interested. But it's not like that. Yeah. Everybody wants the same person. And so that's why marriage is so important. Yeah. You pair people off permanently and comprehensively. So those people are out of the pool. Once those people are out of the pool, other people pair off. Mm-hmm. I, I, like it's it's sad that it's like that. If a group of people really did focus entirely on godliness, it would change it some, but not that much. Because I've also seen situations where I saw four guys asking out the same girl who wasn't all that hot, but was really godly. Mm-hmm. And they all wanted her for their wife. And so there was still competition and prominence. But I would argue that the um, that, that status was a more God-ordained status. Mm-hmm. She That girl was the jewel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's right for them to compete for her. Mm-hmm. You know? And then for her to choose one based on their godliness. Yeah. Right? But then there's other issues of compatibility, like... Like you might, like a girl might know three godly guys and be attracted to one of them more than the others yeah. and have the same interests. Well, great. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, you could, part of it is like sometimes single people hear what I say about this stuff and they overthink it. But then also when I don't say stuff like this, sometimes they really underthink it. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I just want to create room to move, yeah, but also some flow to the river. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, before we wrap up, are there any last things that you want to talk about as it relates to, um, modesty that you didn't get to cover in the sermon that we haven't talked about here? No, I just, I think, I think having the broader definition of modesty and pursuing that more holistically, I think is important. Yeah. And then not having a double standard with women, mm-hmm. I think is, as in, you gotta, you gotta do that as the best you can. Mm-hmm. Um, for men, women's attract physical attractiveness is so obvious, mm-hmm. and the way men negotiate status is more subtle. That sometimes I think it's hard to be even-handed. You just have to do your best. Yeah, you know, you you should only confront a woman about immodesty in pretty egregious examples, and usually only if women think it's a problem. Mm-hmm. Right, because other women are going to be jealous of real female immodesty. Mm-hmm. If you're like, "Hey, that woman shouldn't be dressed like that," and the woman and the woman you're working with is like, "She's fine," mm-hmm. then she's fine. Mm-hmm. Is my is the view I tend to take? Yeah. Well, thank you for talking a little bit more. Thanks for being able to to go in more depth on a couple of these things related to the sermon, and thanks to those of you who asked questions. Um, and yeah, I guess we'll just see you next time. Yep. All right. Happy COVID. thanks for listening to this episode of the engage and equip podcast if you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org you can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast you can also find us on most podcast apps like apple podcasts google podcasts spotify and overcast If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.